Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the AMPT podcast. I'm excited to bring to you another interview from our 2020 annual conference. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a clinical specialist at Michigan Medicine Specialty Clinic and also serves as the director of the Michigan Medicine Orthopedic Physical Therapy Residency Program. She has experience presenting at a wide array of levels and also teaches and serves as a mentor within the residency program. Additionally, Dr. Fisher has experience as a principal investigator, co-investigator, and research assistant. We invited Dr. Fisher to the podcast because she was a presenter at this year's Academy Conference. Her presentation, which I'm very excited to talk to her about, was titled, Multimodal Approach in the Treatment of the Hypermobile Patient. There's no doubt in my mind that this conversation will be educational, so let's find out what Dr. Fisher has to teach us. Dr. Fisher, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, we are excited to have you. This is a topic that I think sometimes people disassociate with manual therapy. So I'm I'm super intrigued and interested in what you have to teach us today. And I'm really excited to explore that interface between the patient population that includes folks with hypermobility syndromes and then, of course, manual therapy, et cetera. As we dive into that, let me just start off by finding out what got you interested in this patient population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My interest in this population is actually quite personal, as I myself have benign hypermobility. And I actually didn't know it until I was in PT school. You know, in PT school, we learn a lot about how to manage joints that don't move, but we don't really learn how to manage joints that move too much. And I had a professor that casually mentioned that, you know, I think you're hypermobile. And that didn't really sink in until I got here to Michigan to do my residency. And in Michigan, I feel like we have an unusually high population of hypermobility in Ehlers-Danlos. And I realized this population, you know, they were, they were quite challenging. And there was a lot that I didn't know about how to treat them, but also how to manage my own symptoms, which I didn't really recognize were as great as they actually were. Um, And so at Michigan, I learned a lot about this and I did a lot of studying on my own, um, again, for self-management, but also because I feel like this population really got missed in our clinic. You know, they would just say, well, you're a little flexible and you just need to exercise, but it's a lot more complex than that. That is precisely reflective of the same experience I've had with the exception that unlike you, I'm not on that spectrum of hypermobility, benign or otherwise. I'm actually the exact opposite. And I, I move approximately with the, the mobility and grace of a concrete statue. But more specifically, when it comes to individuals such as yourself, I find that a lot of people really, like you, don't know that they have some sort of above average flexibility level. And in addition to that, I find when I'm working with people that specialize clinically in hypermobility, they happen to be like you, a person who is the professional who found out that they're on this spectrum of mobility. And then that pushes them to become interested in it. And I've seen that both within our profession, physical therapy and medicine as well. And it just, it seems to be a really good introduction 
And I guess we could also say in some ways that's no different than a lot of the other physios that we meet, which is, for example, the patient with an ACL tear or some other type of sports injury that becomes interested in orthopedic or sports physical therapy. Yeah, I agree. I think that it really gives me a different perspective. And it also helps with that therapeutic alliance because I can relate to a lot of the things that they're feeling and give them strategies on a personal level, which I feel like is really helpful with this population in particular. I completely agree. And you're making me think of a couple of my common experiences as I work with this patient population. And the first one is people will often, like, I guess we could say, break down a little bit and cry because they finally identified somebody who seems to believe what they're saying. The second one is they'll often say things like, oh, so you believe me. And it's the first time they've had somebody, I guess, make that connection with them and, you know, avoid that whole, maybe it's in between your ears type of conclusion. Yeah, I definitely see that a lot in this population. They're, they're pretty frustrated because they've kind of been told that, you know, it's all in their head and it's not a real thing. And some of the things that they are feeling just don't get validated. Um, and I think that's really important um, when dealing with this population is that you, you really validate their, their feelings, their symptoms, their frustrations, their anxiety level. Um, all of that is a big key in how we manage this population. If we're going to manage this population correctly, we have to understand some basic principles. So let's, let's start with a pretty easy question, I think, and that is, are joint hypermobility and joint instability the same thing? And if, in fact, they're not the same thing, why is that? Yeah, I get this question actually a lot where people say, well, I'm really unstable. Um, and that's most of the times inaccurate. Joint hypermobility really just means the joint is capable of moving beyond those normal limits. And it's a descriptor of just how much motion the joint actually has. It's a pretty neutral term. Whereas instability is also when a joint can move beyond those limits. But it usually refers to having a detrimental effect on the joint. So something is damaged. And when we talk about instability and it comes with that connotation of being damaging, then we get into more pain behaviors. But having a hypermobile joint doesn't equal having an unstable joint and vice versa. I think that's an excellent clarification. And when I'm teaching this concept, not just to patients, but also to physical therapists, I'll often draw what you could consider an average bell curve. So yeah, in a bell curve, you know, most people or data points are right in the middle, but then the bell curve goes off to extremes in either direction. When it comes to flexibility, you've got the people like me that are less than average in their flexibility, the people like you that are more than average. But then we also have these extremes at either end. Say, for example, on the less flexible level, you could have somebody with a diagnosis like scleroderma, especially advanced scleroderma. And then all the way over to the other side of the bell curve, you could have Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, et cetera. And that is merely to say, what is somebody's baseline, not whether or not it's a pathological level of flexibility, be it pathological in the over-flexible or the under-flexible direction. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to put it with the bell curve. Now that we've established that the concepts of hypermobility and joint instability aren't the same thing, how is it that you, clinically speaking think that people should arrive at a diagnosis of hypermobility? Well, I think the quickest way is just to screen in your clinic. Uh, I personally screen everybody that walks through my door. I usually use the Byton hypermobility scale, 
Um, so it's a nine point scale of flexibility. And it's just a generalized screen, including multiple joints in the body, um, including the fifth finger, the thumb, elbows, the knees, and the ability to put your hands flat on the floor. And that gets rated you know, one point for each positive. And usually the cutoff scores for being in that more hypermobile category is at least five points out of nine if you're under the age of 50, above six points out of nine if you're a child or an adolescent. And then over the age of 50, uh, it's usually more like four out of nine. But you can also use the five-point hypermobility questionnaire uh, for those older folks. That's sometimes pretty helpful. In the event that you're interested in my score, it is a zero out of nine. (laughs) (laughs) I have a little bit of disdain inside me from when I was a child and we had the presidential physical fitness test. And one of the tests was the sit and reach test. You know, like if you could score me a a negative 15 on that, you probably would. I always felt a little bit, I don't know, maybe robbed or something because I could pass all of the other components of that fitness test. I was by default in shape as a child, by default of, you know, participating in sports and whatnot. And I, I just always thought it was wrong to equate my level of flexibility on a sit and reach test with, with fitness. And part of the message I'm getting here from the beginning of our conversation is that we should probably have a, a more nuanced view of flexibility than the ideas we get, for example, from the presidential physical fitness test. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's really important to remember that hypermobility is really just a descriptor of how your joints move. It's not a diagnosis. Um, some of those diagnoses, when we get into the genetic conditions, um, two of which you already mentioned, Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan syndrome, there's different tests for those. So when we just screen our patients in the clinic, we're really looking for, are they a little bit more flexible? Do they have more mobility in their joints than the average person? But we can't really, in the clinic, say that they have this genetic condition. Even the hypermobility type of Ehlers-Danlos is, is really a a diagnosis of exclusion. They kind of exclude all the other genetic factors because there's not a genetic test for hypermobility type of Ehlers-Danlos. It's really just criterion based. So it's really important that, you know, the scale is something that gives you information. You can't make a diagnosis from it. It just gives you a better ability to treat the patient that's in front of you. And if they are really high on that scale, that should clue you in to do a little bit more investigation and see if they have some of these other components of a genetic syndrome and are they where they should be in terms of, do you need to refer to somebody else to do a little bit more investigation? You've already started to dive into this topic, but let's take that a little bit further. And can you provide us more of an overview of the different types of hypermobility syndromes and why it's important for us to be able to identify the differences between them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's really been a lot of good work in the past few years, really trying to better classify the individuals with hypermobility. Um, and the term that's now the, the most widely accepted is called hypermobility spectrum disorders. So it's really just a group of conditions related to joint hypermobility. Um, and I'll give you a few examples. So localized joint hypermobility, they can have symptoms or they don't have any pain at all. It usually involves less than five joints. And the Vitan scores, the scale that I just referenced, um, they, they tend to be lower. 
this condition, so localized joint hypermobility, it's usually acquired from like trauma or excessive training, potentially joint disease. So those are kind of our lower end of the spectrum. And then we can get into generalized joint hypermobility, um, which is what I have. Um, so it involves more than five joints. The Biton scores are higher and it's usually congenital. It can be acquired, but it's usually due to another condition like a widespread inflammation or degenerative disease, sometimes hypothyroidism or endocrine disorders. And so that one is a little bit more involved, but you'll notice that those Biton scores are higher and they usually have more complaints, usually have multiple body complaints, basically. Um, and then the next on the spectrum is something we've already mentioned, but it's actually a genetic syndrome where hypermobility is just a component, so such as Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan syndrome. So if the flexibility in those latter situations is just a component of the overall situation going on, what are the other related clinical factors along with the hypermobility that a clinician should be aware of if they see a patient in this category within the clinic? Well, within the, we'll talk a little bit more about the generalized hypermobility, um, just due to the brevity of this podcast and also of our talk at AOMT. Um, we don't really have enough time to get into the genetic components of, you know, what Ehlers-Danlos looks like. We talk a little bit about the hypermobility type in the AOMT presentation. Um, but when we look at just generalized hypermobility, you usually see that they might have an increased risk of trauma. Um, so micro trauma, just, you know, cumulative effects of, you know, overuse or daily use or macro trauma. So they will often report dislocations or subluxations. There's usually a chronic pain component, I would say almost always. And that could be just an increased, you know, pain signal. Um, it could be due to peripheral or central sensitization. And then, you know, some of the things that you'll see in clinic is that, you know, the proprioception isn't great. Balance is usually not great as well. Um, just because they're trying to manage all of this motion at their joints and they usually don't have the muscular strength or even body awareness to recognize what that feels like. They will sometimes say that, you know, they really have disability with walking or stair climbing, you know, things that most people can do with ease. And then endurance and fatigue are, are really big in this population. It's been noted that fatigue is sometimes the most disabling complaint um, with this population. They're just so tired all the time. And I think that's just due to a myriad of issues. But just remember that, you know, one day could look quite different from the next day. And some of that has to do with just endurance and fatigue and what they did the day before, how they slept, what they ate. You know, there's so many components here that can have that. Um, some of the other clinical findings that we see that we should definitely mention are POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. So basically, they get a really high heart rate and a drop in blood pressure when they change positions. Um, this could lead to kind of passing out. Um, so you want to be aware if they have this condition because it really does impact what you do with your treatment. Um, and sometimes, you know, that is so disabling that, you know, you really just have to get them acclimated to activity in general um, before you can even start, you know, strengthening or other treatment, some other conditions that they'll often have is a, you know, GI dysfunction, pelvic bladder dysfunction, 
urinary incontinence. So that's something that I do screen with my low back patients. And that should be a clue that, you know, maybe we need to bring a different physical therapist on board that treats pelvic stuff, or even just a, a different physician. And then headaches are big as well. There's so many reasons why, but I feel like almost every patient that I is on this hypermobility spectrum um, does complain of headaches, um, sometimes migraines and sometimes just you know regular headaches. I think you just did a good job trying to summarize that. And you are, of course, absolutely correct to point out that there's a lot of potential information wrapped up into that one simple question. But overall, again, great job. These are, of course, the types of things that I think a clinician should be looking for. And what that means to me in part is that our management strategies have to be very broad and all-encompassing and, of course, different patient to patient. How would you go about summarizing what that broad approach should look like on average or in general with a patient who's on that hypermobility spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's quite complex and it really does take a team. Um, I think if you had the resources available to have a team approach, um, that's definitely the best way to go. There's a lot of other factors, psychosocial factors that really can impact our treatment. Um, anxiety, again, fatigue, um, depression sometimes. And we mentioned this earlier, but you know, frustration around their condition, the lack of awareness of their condition, and really the lack of acceptance that it, it's a real thing and it is impacting their life, even though they typically look relatively normal and healthy. Having that in the back of your mind really helps to you know, give you a good starting off point as far as making realistic goals and, you know, having a team approach with the patient, but also bringing in those other providers as necessary. But we at Michigan use a, you know, multidisciplinary approach. So PT, uh, we often get ortho, which would be me. And then um, I call in some of my pelvic floor colleagues to help. OT is really important here, um, sometimes for splinting, um, sometimes just for pacing, posture, finding different ways to do their regular daily activities. Um, Hand therapy is really helpful as far as splinting and bracing. Um, Usually the hands are are pretty complicated and pretty involved um, with some of these higher hypermobile patients, um, especially if they do have those genetic syndromes. Um, Social work can be important. A psychologist or a pain psychologist is often somebody will uh, refer to. Um, And then just seeing if they really need a different um, type of physician on board, like cardiology or GI, rheumatology, anything like that. Um, And then one that we wouldn't typically think of, but um, a dietitian is is often pretty helpful just because of the GI issues. These people usually have motility issues. So they just aren't getting the nutrition that they need, especially when we're going to start an exercise program or a detailed strengthening program, you know, having the right nutrition is really important so that they can build better strength and um, have better endurance for just daily tasks. But as far as the physical therapy realm, like, you know, what our role is, it's really multifaceted. You can't really use just one thing. As I noted earlier, these, these people all often have um, chronic pain and They don't really understand what that means. So having some just general education on pain 
but also some more detailed information on you know, pain neuroscience um, is often helpful, especially when we are, you know, they've heard the term unstable and they think that means damage. So now I shouldn't move, but you know, hurt doesn't always equal harm as we're very aware of. And this is something that they've often never heard and they really need to wrap their head around before we move forward. Manual therapy obviously is something that we have in our tool bag that we could use. And then exercise is really our biggest role here. And this can really vary. Uh, We need to know that, you know, general aerobic activity is often limited in this population. So, you know, we incorporate that, Um, but also really specific strengthening on the whole body, really, especially when you get into those higher bite and scores or the genetic syndromes. You really have to realize that you're not just treating one body part, you're really treating the whole person because everything is related. And, uh, you know, some days they'll come in and say, oh, my knee hurts. And the next day it's my ankle and the next day it's your hip. And, you know, you really have to focus up and down the chain to get a better picture or your prognosis isn't going to be as favorable. Overall, I think you just did a great job summarizing that. And one of the points that I want to bring up from a manual therapy standpoint, and I think everything you said is consistent with this, but I want to remind our listeners that if you go to the IFOMT definition of manual therapy, it essentially includes everything you just said. Stated differently, it's easy for us to think about manual therapy just as the hands-on component, this technique or that technique. But our definition, and this has been the case for years, involves updated scientific evidence, clinical reasoning, manual therapy, therapeutic exercise, and the biopsychosocial model. We are supposed to, as expert manual physical therapists, we're supposed to be taking all of these factors into account. So if I could put some words in your mouth, part of what I just heard you say is this diagnosis, or more specifically these diagnoses, should be in the wheelhouse of orthopedic manual physical therapists if we take enough time, energy, and effort to bring them into our wheelhouse, because it's kind of the same thing that we do with everything else, but we just have to know, of course, different variables and information that is specific to the patient population that consists of hypermobility spectrum disorders. Yeah, 100%, I agree. Um, This is definitely well within our wheelhouse, but I think sometimes you have to search a little bit Uh, more for how to do this and the techniques that are more appropriate. But I mean, I would call myself a manual therapist. Uh, I did my dissertation on thoracic manipulation. But I think this is, you know, definitely one of my passions as far as this population. And diving into that whole manual therapy component a little bit further, and when I say that right now, I'm meaning the hands-on component. Can you give us an idea of what type of hands-on techniques you're utilizing with patients that are on the hypermobility spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. I think manual therapy is actually really important for this population. And this might be just as a personal thing. I, I know that sometimes it feels like I need that. And I think a lot of times people, they get brushed off because, no, you're hypermobile, so I'm not going to touch you. And I, I think that if that is your ultimate end, you know, that's a, that's a hard stop for you, that these, these people are, are kind of missing out on a portion that could be very beneficial. I think it's also important to realize that 
you know, it, it's important to be specific with this population. Sometimes it's really not, but in this population, uh, it definitely is more important to be specific as far as your manual techniques that you choose. But you can use grade one and two oscillations just for pain relief, just getting more um, lubrication in the joints. And we can, again, go above and below the area of their pain complaint. I would say that I use soft tissue quite often and trigger point release with the caveat that every time I do a soft tissue release or a trigger point release, I will follow it up with an exercise. So an activation exercise so that now that we release the muscle, then we teach it how to fire correctly so that it gives stability to the joint instead of just more stress to the joint. And then, you know, I I do think that we can manipulate this population, um, but with, you know, again, being very specific, I would say that the part that I really use this on is really the thoracic spine and the rib cage. Um, That tends to be the most restricted area that I see in this population, just in my experience. And you can get so much benefit from thoracic spine manipulation. You can get carryover to other areas like the neck and shoulder. And then you'll also get a hypoalgesic effect. So, you know, pain um, reduction in distant areas from that. But again, it, it's really going to be a low amplitude manipulation. You're not going to high velocity manipulate this population, um, especially if that joint is hypermobile. Your description is very much consistent with my experience in clinical practice. I use manual therapy, I'm not going to say on all of these patients, but probably on most of them. I generally find that these individuals, yes, they're above average in their flexibility, but because they've been taught to be fearful, literally the healthcare providers in their lives have taught them to be fearful of movement. And, you know, sometimes their family and their friends have done the same thing. They see that higher level of mobility and they respond with statements like, ew, that's gross, don't do that. Why aren't you normal? And then if I can come in and re-educate them on what's going on with their body and then help them gently restore their normal manual therapy or otherwise, it typically makes them feel better. And that's the type of clinical, let's just call it outcome, that I wasn't able to get to earlier in my career. But after, you know, the residency process, the fellowship process, and learning how to think better from my mentors. I was able to, you know, slowly work my way into that realm. I, I totally owe that to institutions like Aompton. I'm thankful to have been given the opportunity to help this patient population find what I think sometimes is a better pathway through healthcare. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, it's they they do get stiff, you know, when they are fearful of movement and they just stop doing things. Um, and remembering that, you know, hypermobility is a spectrum. So even though the joint doesn't feel stiff to the clinician, it might feel stiff to their body because they're used to a little bit more mobility. Being able to differentiate that with just an overworking of the muscular system trying to give you stability, you know, something that I think was well within our realm to do as manual therapists. I completely agree, and I'm interested and intrigued to hear maybe an example or two from your clinical practice of how you've used your skills as a manual therapist to help patients get better who are on that hypermobility spectrum. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but um, I'll give you a quick example of a, um, she was probably 12, 13 years old, and she came to me with knee pain, which is something I don't typically treat because I usually treat mostly the spine. But she did have a diagnosis of hypermobility type of Ehlers-Danlos. Um, so it was this knee pain. She was a track athlete um, and she just kept having this knee pain. And we did so much balance, proprioception, strengthening, and you know something was still a little off. And I was trying to just do exercise. I mean, she looks healthy looking kid, really strong, um, which is not very typical. Um, for where these people come to me. But I ended up looking at her hip and it was her opposite hip of the pain complaint and mobilized her hip medially and her knee pain went away. I mean, it was that quick. After that, we focused on her running starts and it was just that little bit of a restriction was overloading the opposite knee. And I was kind of mad at myself that I missed it for a couple of weeks, but I finally found it. So, and then, you know, the other end of the spectrum is somebody who's, you know, really disabled. Basically, I had a, a patient come in to me who we were trying to get her tested for Ehlers Danlos. And I saw her for so many conditions neck pain, rib pain, hip pain, shoulder pain. And she was very educated on this. She, her father was a physician who she thought had um, Ehlers-Danlos, but had never been confirmed. You know, we did a lot of just talking and going through how to get things done during the day. And it was really about how to protect her joints while she did what she needed to do, but also just bring some awareness to how to protect her joints and how to do things a little bit differently in her day. She would typically, you know, sit with her legs crossed all the time and then she wouldn't be able to walk because her ankle would be misaligned, she said. And so it was really about kind of education and bringing awareness to her before we even started the exercise realm. You know, and just being able to be flexible with that population and realize that it is definitely not a sprint. It's a marathon and it's going to take time. The results that you usually see are, you know, long, takes a long time. Um, and sometimes quick changes can happen. And it's usually due to more, you know, awareness and changing, you know, what they're doing wrong and teaching them how to do things a little bit better to protect their body, but also to get a better muscular involvement from, you know, the whole system. That is a great answer. And I love it. It's obvious to me that you have spent considerable amount of time learning about this patient population and then working with them clinically. How is it that you would advise any physiotherapist or other professional to become more knowledgeable and competent when it comes to working with this patient population? Well, I think there's a lot of things we can do. And I don't know that there's one specific thing, but I'm just looking into you know, courses. So if you're looking at manual therapy, just making sure that manual therapy is a specific thing, that you learn things that can be very specific um, so that you can utilize them a little bit more on this population. And then, you know, really getting more comfortable with exercise prescription and progress because, you know, exercise is really one of the biggest things that this population needs, but you have to be flexible and you have to be adaptable 
And you have to understand that, you know, the impact of gravity, uh, you know, we talk about that a lot as we're getting our initial training. But then after that, you know, we're trying to be creative and do high level things. And, you know, a lot of times we really start in supine, gravity minimized, have to be able to, you know, position the joint so that we can get good activation. Because if there's a way to compensate, the hypermobile patient will find it. Um, And so you have to be pretty in tune to what they're doing, have to pay attention. One-on-one works by far the best with this population. They need that, you know, personal connection. They need that detailed eye to look at what they're doing. Posture is super important here. There's some good courses out there that talk about breathing, um, which can be really important with this population just because we're, you know, sometimes really ineffective breathers because we're using some of our big muscles instead of our smaller stabilizing muscles. Um, But also the Ehlers-Danlos Society website um, has really good resources and has really good resources for clinicians, but also for patients. And they talk about the hypermobility spectrum disorders. It's not exclusive to Ehlers-Danlos. They have, you know, forums, patient forums, more information, resources, and, you know, small groups that patients can connect and kind of share their story. And that in itself can be really helpful because, again, that's another validation that there's other people out there like me and that this is a real thing. And there's a lot of um, things that we can do to be better and to have better outcomes and to, you know, basically live a normal functional life, which is the ultimate goal, I think, as physical therapists. I think that's spot on, and hopefully your suggestions can help send our listeners in the correct direction. Before we end, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Fisher. It has been a pleasure having you as a guest on the podcast today. I thank you for your time when it comes to sharing with our audience your knowledge and experience. And as you progress, you know, moving forward as a clinician, educator, et cetera, I'd like you to know that we'd be honored to have you back in the future if occasion should arise. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.